How's everybody doing? Doing good? How can you not sing a song like that and not be good? My goodness. <clears throat> well, I hope uh, this week you took advantage of what we talked about last week and just lived out this idea of living in God's grace and the thrill that we can now approach God. I hope you just enjoyed Him. I hope you dealt with sin in your life. I think one of the things that you'll realize that in, as we draw near to God, the beautiful aspect is as we deal with sin, don't we? You, you can't approach the throne of grace and not realize that there's, there's sin that we need to deal with in our lives, but then all of a sudden you realize that that's exactly what that throne is. It's a throne of grace in which our sin has been dealt with. I hope you just were blown away by truths that you learned about God. I hope you saw it real in your life. I mean, that's one of the things that sometimes you leave a message like last week that's kind of this 30,000 foot kind of view of God and His grace. And my prayer is that you didn't stay down there. I pray that God's grace landed into your life. It landed in real ways. It landed in ways in which you dealt with your spouse or your kids or your workplace. Grace is not something that's meant to stay in the clouds. Grace, as Jesus modeled it, it hit the ground and it transformed people. And so that's what we've been doing with 1 Corinthians. If, if you're new here, we're, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, okay, this guy that's about ready to bring your Bibles. Uh, okay, he, granted, he doesn't look a day over 80. Look at that man. He's a good-looking man. He took me out Friday night and said, let's go out for my birthday. And I thought, oh, let's go out for his birthday. We show up, and it's all this where the guys are supposed to look at women and go humana, humana. And I'm like, what did he take me to? Don't worry, it was the melodrama in Moore Park. So <clears throat> I was glad my wife was there with me. Jeez, three pastors, or four pastors were on the front row. Man, that's who this man is. Just so you know, be careful. <clears throat> but you'll need your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. And what I've been trying to do in, in our study of 1 Corinthians and what Paul's going to be doing as we learn and we understand more of 1 Corinthians is he wants us to wrap our minds around this ongoing struggle that we have. And the way that I've been trying to frame it is this idea that we miss the point. Now, again, what I mean by that is that in some ways we we miss it over here, we miss it over there. Sometimes we mean to, we do it willfully. Sometimes we don't mean to, it's just ignorance. But at the core of who we are just as humans in our human existence because of the fall... On an ongoing, everyday battle, we struggle with missing the point. Now, the beauty of what Paul's going to do throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he's going to answer this question, okay, fine, Paul, then how do I avoid missing the point? If that's my tendency, how do I do this? And and what Paul's going to do throughout the entire letter that he's just going to keep coming back to over and over again, and what excited him the most was Jesus Christ. He kept saying over and over, he is the point. In fact, I think if you look at Paul's life, nothing else he did or said made sense unless Jesus was the answer to it. Everything about how he framed his life. And what he's going to do now is as he's dealing with the the Corinthians is is he's going to help them understand that in everything that they're facing all throughout the rest of these 16 chapters is this idea of how do I begin to reframe my life in light of who Jesus is. But he also wants them to get this fact that, listen, God is going to provide everything that you need to be able to accomplish this task. 
He talks about the amazing giving of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to spend time throughout the book of 1 Corinthians just examining the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. But he wants us to know in verses 1 through 3, you've been called by God. You've been placed in this amazing family that is his. You've been then called to a purpose on this world. And in the middle of all of it, last week he landed this amazing reality of grace into it. Just this beautiful idea of God's one-way love. And the way that I tried to kind of frame it was around this definition. So let me just read it to you so we can kind of get our our thinking going. But it's a guy by the name of Paul Zoll. And again, I so wish my name was Todd Zod. I just, every time I read that guy's name, I'm like, dang, that would be cool. (sighs) Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It's a true cliche, for it is a good description of the thing. Let's go a little further, though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver to the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. I just thought that was a great way to frame this idea. Now, at the core of this, though, we have to understand that grace isn't just a concept. It doesn't just sit up there at 30,000 feet, but instead, it's meant to be a reality. See, sometimes I think we can live up in this warm, fuzzy world of of grace, and we can just kind of be blown away with it on, on one side, but the thing that we miss is that grace is functional. It lands into our everyday lives. It has implications on it. And our goal is is that if we can ever grasp the massive scope of it, the more and more then our lives are transformed and the more we begin to what Paul's going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 2.16, live out the promise that we have the mind of Christ. Too often what happens is, and the reason I wanted to bring grace in here, is that Paul is going to come at the Corinthians pretty hard now for the next 15 chapters. But before he gets there, he wants to make sure that they understand everything that he's going to talk about is framed inside of this one-way love of Jesus towards them. He's not going to motivate out of guilt. He's not going to motivate out of shame. And oftentimes that's how I've done that as a, as a, as a preacher. When I preach like high school or college students, man, I know I can get them to come forward and cry if I do guilt and shame enough. Especially you give me a good band with some music. I'll have, I'll have high schoolers crying like little schoolgirls. Grace and shame might stop us in our tracks, but grace is what draws us to God and motivates us to live the way he's called us. It's a complete different perspective. And this week it was so interesting when I was on my way to go to that debauchery that Greg took me to. We're driving through Moore Park, and I had a moment in which my wife lived out grace in the trenches with me. I'm driving along down L.A., and I don't know if there's, you know this part on L.A. and Moore Park, but eventually the one lane forces you to turn right. I don't know that. And so I'm driving, and I go, oh, no, and there's a stop sign. So I start to pull over, and this guy just starts honking at me. 
Now, my first inclination in my humanness, I roll down my window, (laughs) just to be honest about who I am, and this is what my wife says to me, Grace, Pastor Todd. (laughs) Just wanted to say have a nice day. God bless you, huh? I mean, I was just like, oh man, I just, it was like, in this beautiful reality, my wife convicted me. But then isn't it great she throw in that word, grace. Just so you know, my wife is more spiritual than I am. <laughs> but over the next few verses, this is what I love about it. Paul's not going to leave us in the clouds. And he's going to take us now on a journey through the Corinthians' lives to help them understand how grace hit. And so he's going to take, look at verse 4. Here's the verse we looked at last week. And really, we only looked at one word of the verse, but that's all right. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And now what he's going to do is he's going to take us to verse 5. So look at verse 5. He's going to clarify this a little bit more about what he means by this grace. And the first kind of mind-bending thing that he tells us about how God's grace lands into our lives, verse 5, is that it came to them in, in every way, he says, you were enriched in him. Now that little word enriched is so key to our understanding of how God's grace comes to us because I think sometimes we think well of God's past grace that somehow he covered all my sins and we, we kind of have a concept of his future grace but what Paul wants them to get is is that when God's grace landed on them it just kept coming. It didn't stop. He just kept and the word he uses this idea of enriching them or he made them rich. Now here's something you might have to hold your seats because you may not be aware of this, but all of you that sit in this room today are rich in what matters, that know Jesus. And you're not just kind of rich, you're filthy rich. Now we may not see that, and that's what Paul's doing here, is he wants us to have God's eyes of what really matters in our life. And it's not because of anything we've done. It, we didn't do anything to earn these riches. All of our wealth, we are, of who we are, came to us because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, the way that the Bible and the New Testament explains our wealth is we are adopted sons of, and daughters of the King. And because of that, it tells us in Galatians 4, 5, we now have all the rights and privileges of being a daughter and son of the king of the universe. Now, the Bible, whenever it talks about this, when it explains the wealth of God, it wants to help us understand that when it says God is wealthy, it means he owns everything. That's pretty wealthy. It explains it from this way in which it says, look, he created all of the earth and he created the heavens and he created the heavens in which he dwells where the angels worship him nonstop. It talks about this idea that he caused all things to come into existence, that he he gave breath to every living thing. He gave breath to bugs and to birds and to beasts and to cattle. And even he talks about even to us. And even from this side of it, when we talk about even God's grace to us right now, the Son, it says in Colossians 1, is holding everything together by His power. It's just grace. I think in our heads, we call people on this earth rich, 
because we compare them to us. You compare Bill Gates to God, he's a filthy beggar. That's what he wants us to get, is our dad is ridiculously and excessively and filthy rich. And because we are his sons and daughters, his adopted kids, we are rich too. Our problem is we're like the Corinthians. I think if we're honest with ourselves, when you think about your own life, we are just saturated in our culture in this adulterous love affair with things and pleasures and experiences. And I think for most of us, our first thought when it comes to wealth, we think cash, we think uh, you know, assets, we think property, and that's not how God functions. That's what we tend to do to accumulate wealth. That's, that's how we go about it in order to get the things that, that give us these experiences, that give us these pleasures. But Paul, when he's talking about it in relation to God, our wealth is in relation to what God values most, which to God, whenever you talk you know, gold or when you talk silver, when you talk diamonds, to God, they're just rocks. We might value them, but God's going, are you kidding me? I created those and I can create more if you want me to. He wants us to understand it from a different standpoint. And instead of finding our identity in those things and finding it in experiences and things and wealth and all those different things that kind of bombard us on a daily basis, what he wants us to do is to find our identity in Christ. Instead of viewing our, our world in every aspect of our lives through the world's eyes, he wants us to get God's eyes on our world so that we no longer find our identity in cars we drive and the trips we take and the clothes we wear and the toys we own and the job I have and the schooling choices I make for my kid and the activities or sports my kids do. Paul's just writing this and saying, I know the world is telling you what riches are, but you have been made rich. Past tense already have it. It's powerful. One of the best movies I've ever seen that battled through identity, I don't know how many of you remember the movie Jerry Maguire. In that movie, I watched it with my wife and some of the things he said towards the end, I was just like, oh, I wish I would have said that to her. But the whole point of Jerry Maguire is this guy trying to find identity. He's trying to find identity in his work. He's trying to find identity in his friendships. He's trying to find identity in money. He's trying to find his identity in love. And you can just see his whole life is just a train wreck. Finally, he comes to this eureka in which he's, he's finally realized what life is all about. And he shows up at her house. And I don't know if you remember the scene, but there's all these women that just hate men. And he comes barging in there, right? And, and he's, I think he says something along the lines, I'm looking for my wife. And it's just kind of quiet for a second, right? And he mumbles and bumbles through how he's been searching for identity. And then he says these words, I love you. You complete me. Oh, that's good. He starts to bumble for a little bit, right? And she stops him in the middle of all. She goes, shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. That's a great line. But it's a line that at its core possesses a lie. No human being No thing, no experience completes us. 
The point of the Bible is there is only one who completes us. And when we get to like the book of Colossians in 2.10, it says we have been made complete in Christ. We don't need anything else. In fact, one of the things that that when we talk about this is, is that true, God does richly bless us. He blesses us with all kinds of things to enjoy. I don't want us to somehow leave here today thinking then the way to spiritual maturity is that I'm just going to beat my body up and I'm going to deprive myself of things because in Colossians 2 later it says it doesn't do anything for you. But what Paul does want them to get is he includes into this little idea inside of 1 Timothy 6 is don't set your hope on these things which are uncertain. The reason we are so depressed in our culture is we've set our hope on stuff that's uncertain. And this is where Paul's coming in and presenting Christ to him and saying, in Christ you were made rich. You were made complete in him. You don't need anything else. You have it. And while these things might fail you, look down in verse 9 in 1 Corinthians. Look at those first three words. God is what? Faithful. Those things are unfaithful. God is always faithful. He will never let you down. And if I had to pick a place, I believe our culture, and I believe probably all of us in this room struggle the most, it is right here. This is where we tend, if you remember the question I asked, is Simi changing us or are we changing Simi? This is where Simi tends to change us. It's all of our finding our identity and our things and our kids and the people that we are around instead of finding our identity in Christ. But not only that, listen to me. We have a message from God to our community that they can stop trying to find completeness in all those things and instead they can find their completeness in Christ because he's the one who completes us. That's good news. All of those things drain us and disappoint us, but only Christ completes us those that we run to on a regular basis, we can stop doing all that. We can stop trying to find our satisfaction in those things. Jesus has come to free you from this nonstop, incessant trying to find completeness in all that this world has to offer. And instead, he says, I'm offering you me. Jesus, in Jesus, we are complete. I think this is why Paul, again, he wanted the Corinthians, I think he wants us to see us through God's eyes. You can tell I'm trying to hit this home hard because I want us to get this wealth we possess is so extreme and so excessive that Paul, by the time he gets to Ephesians 1, realizes it is so mind-bending that we can't wrap our minds around it. He says, that's why I have to pray with you that you will understand your inglorious inheritance in the saints. He was begging God for them. He knew that it's hard to understand. He knew that this world was bombarding them with what they thought was wealth and he was praying for them that they would get that. That they would get God's one-way, unconditional, passionate love that had been extended to sinners who didn't deserve it, who could never earn it. He has made us rich in what really matters, period. We need nothing else. Now, I love it because this is what Peter's going to do. He's going to help us get an idea. Okay, Todd, so it's not gold and silver and all this other stuff. Fine. Then what is it? Well, first of all, it's in Christ. But Peter comes into this and he he talks about this in his second letter that he writes out that we have in in chapter one. But in in verse three, he says, his divine power has granted to us 
everything pertaining, and here's the key to life and godliness. God may not give us extreme wealth from the standpoint like we think rocks, experiences, but he gives us what matters, life and godliness. And that's why when we get to like other places, when, when he's also praying for us, he, he, Paul has to sit there and go, man, God, would you help them to get this? Would you help them understand the riches they have? So this idea, when you look back down at verse 5 of what it means to be made rich in every way that Paul's talking about in verse 5 is infinitely and extravagantly bigger than our earthly concept of wealth. And let me just make sure I kind of put a, a period on this so that we get it. Of all the things that God could have given us that he owns, which is everything, He gave us what was most precious to him. He gave us himself. That's powerful. That's what Jesus was talking about when John wrote in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son. He didn't give us rocks. He didn't give us property. He gave us himself. He reached into that treasure box and of all the things he could have pulled out, what mattered most, he pulled out his son. Now the question is, how did we get that wealth? Go with me to 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 8. Second, verse 8, chapter 8. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, look at verse 9. <clears throat> Powerful verse. Here's our word again, grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become what? Rich. Now this is going to become the model now that Paul is going to follow, that if this is the model that Jesus followed, this is the model that God is going to ask us to follow is that he is enriching us with everything that we need. And the idea is that he's going to turn this corner now in the rest of 1 Corinthians 1. In the turning of this corner now, he's going to help us understand what it means now to be immensely graced by God so that we might grace. This is what I mean. It's going to hit the ground. Now, the place in which it's going to hit the ground, he's going to choose kind of two things. He could, you're going to see in verse 7, he's going, to, he's going to kind of enlarge it to everything, but he's going to grab two things to help them understand how does this immensity of God's grace hit the ground? He knew if he, choose, if he chose like 50 million examples, it would never land. So he grabbed this idea. Look at what happens. He talks about it in verse 5. That in every way you are rich in him in all speech and all knowledge. He said, okay, so let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of how God's grace, his immense grace, his riches have landed into you. And the way that I have seen it, is his point, is I saw within your church that this grace landed in all knowledge and all speech. Now, again, we have to keep this qualified. The the all that he's speaking about is, is, is everything that I've said before. We have all the speech and we have all the knowledge necessary to accomplish all that God has for us. He's not going to give us all these other things. In other words, he's not going to teach you what is the secret to pi mathematically. You're not going to sit there and go, I get it, 3.1415. He's not going to do that. He's going to give us everything we need for life and godliness. 
And he said, and it landed into your speech and your knowledge. Now, the speech to which Paul's referring to, and it's important to understand this, is the telling of God's truth. He said, when I saw grace land in you, I saw it land in such a way that you all were telling each other God's truth. Now, God gives every group of believers the capacity, uh, the the grace to speak for him. And and I get it. You know, sometimes people will think, no, God gives gifted communicators to the church. That's probably what he's talking about. But what Paul probably means is that we have all that is necessary, all the God-given ability, the same capability, the same capacity to speak for God in the way that he wants us to speak for him. Every one of us in here have that. Nobody's exempt. Everybody has that. It flows from grace. And let's be honest, we've never, we never have a hard time talking about the things that we're most excited about. But once grace grabs us, we can't shut up. Man, two years ago, if you wanted to find out what was important to me, all I could talk about was the Steelers. Why? Because they were good. This year, they haven't even... Hey. There must be demonic control back over here. (laughs) I don't want to talk about the Steelers this year because they haven't won a game. The thing he's telling, oh gosh. (laughs) Come out! (sighs) Jeez. Forgive them for they know not what they do. When I get excited about something, this is what I meant when I wanted you to get grace and I wanted just to spend time in grace last week. I feel like we so try to motivate, you ought to go do this and you ought to go do that. Oh my gosh, you must not love Jesus enough. All the while we forget that that's not the way God motivates. He gives us such a grand picture of him that we're so excited that we can't shut up. That's what he's talking about. He said, I watched you as a church and you guys couldn't shut up about Jesus Christ. It's all you talked about. Grace motivated their speech. Now we're getting into the trenches, aren't we? The tongue is an interesting little booger. That's why it's caged by teeth to shut you up. But Paul says, when I saw grace, it came out of your mouth. Now, besides the ongoing battle, I think, with kind of finding our identity in in things and experiences, I believe probably the most common way in which Christians miss the point is not speaking for God. We struggle with it, don't we? And if you don't think you do, then, man, praise God, because the rest of us really struggle at times. And I don't care if we're talking to believers or unbelievers, we just have a struggle with it. And I've made all the excuses, and I've heard all the excuses. It runs from everything from, oh, you know, I don't know what to say, or it could even be, I don't know how to say it. I just don't think I can do it. But Paul comes in with grace and just interjects into it, and he shatters every excuse that we would ever have by reminding them, you have the grace resources to do it. You've got the the wealth of God at your disposal in how you speak for him. Now, let me show you this. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians and go to Luke 12 so I can kind of show you what I'm talking about. How does grace land into this? Luke 12, and we're going to be in verse 11. 
Now what Jesus has done up to this point is he's been talking about this idea of, of us not being anxious about anything, that, that God's one way undying love for them is, is intense. And then he informs them, basically, look, in this, in this battle that you have between fear of man and fear of God, there is going to be a resource that God is going to grace you with, even at the most difficult moments that, you've, that you have, in which you will be able to speak for God. Now look at verse 11. He says this, But when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, I love this, don't worry about it. You kidding me? But he says, don't worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. God says, listen to me. You're worried about what you're going to say? That's why I've given you my Holy Spirit. Just talk. Get out there. Share about Jesus. But Todd, I don't know. I don't know a lot. Are you kidding me? One of the best stories ever was super personal for me. I said super. I sound like a fourth grader. It was very personal for me. I remember my mom one time. She, was, she started to share her faith with her boss. Now, of all the people they tell you not to share your faith with, it's who? Your boss. But man, my mom at that point in her life was just getting excited about the grace of God that's with, that was within her life. And so she figured, who cares? I'm just going to start sharing with her. Now, here's the key on this. This woman that she was sharing with, who, by the way, is now her best friend, is probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. She had multiple, like, secondary degrees, doctorates. I mean, she's just this woman that is immensely brilliant. My mom, on the other hand, because of just circumstances, she, she got pregnant at a young age. At that time, they would kick you out of school. And I know that seems so weird, but that's what they used to do back then. My mom didn't even have a high school degree. Talk about a mismatch from our world's perspective. But I remember my mom coming home and just saying, man, I, 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 I'm finding myself able to talk to her. Why? Because my mom is so brilliant? Are any of us really brilliant? She was learning Luke 12. And the more she began to talk to this lady, my mom came home one day and she goes, I can't even believe what I just said. I sounded so smart. <laughs> she said what she said, and I'm like, dang, that's good. We should record that, you know. But there's just this side of it where she starts sharing with this woman, and after a while, the high school dropout led the woman with all the degrees to Jesus. She bent her knee and experienced grace. Praise God, huh? Why? Because my mom was so good? Because she earned it? Because she deserved it? No. Grace. Grace in the time of need. So those moments that you hit just those tough spots and you have to question somebody or maybe address a tough issue in a friend or a spouse's life, here's the thing that you can be promised. You have the resources of what to say. When you're walking with somebody during one of the low moments of their life, I've always found whenever somebody goes through a difficult time, whether it's death or divorce, everybody runs away from them because they don't know what to say. By the Holy Spirit, you can know what to say. And sometimes the Holy Spirit graces you by shutting your mouth and just being there. When you're walking with someone that doesn't know Jesus, 
you'll be given the words to say. And again, I don't want to make this so simplistic where everybody sits there and goes, yeah, I know. And I get it that a biblical scholar might have more tools in their toolbox. But you are no less empowered to talk with someone than anyone else. God will give us the grace to speak for him. And by the way, we're called to go do it. And if you don't know what to say, everyone has a story, don't we? In fact, you are the expert of your story. Share that. Now the reason he, now go back to the text. Look at verse 5. See that word speech there. The reason he connects now all speech with all knowledge is because I don't think he's saying that you're going to get this information in a vacuum outside of what Jesus has revealed to us. In other words, you're not just going to be sitting there and all of a sudden go, I've got something new from God for you. In fact, the way Jesus clarifies it in John 14, 26 is, is that the Spirit will teach you, and here's the key, cause you to remember all that I have said to you. He will cause us to remember those things that we put into our head. God has given us enough revelation. He's given us enough understanding to speak the truth into the world. Kind of like when Jesus, remember when he fed the crowd with, of several thousand with, with two fish and five loaves and they said, how could he do it? And I look at my own brain and I think my brain is the two loaves and, or the, the, the five loaves and two fish, but yet somehow God takes that out and he uses it for his glory. Some of you got 12 fish and some of you got two. God can multiply them both and use them for his glory. It happens to me all the time. I'm sitting there and I'm counseling somebody and as I'm counseling, I'm begging God, give me the words to say because I don't know what to say and then suddenly the Holy Spirit reaches into the tiny toolbox in my mind and teaches me and gives me what to say. Or I'm out talking with somebody about Jesus and I'm, I'm begging again, God, give me the right words for what to say. Teach me something. And then what comes out of my mouth just seems to be the perfect thing for that particular moment. I mean, shoot, seriously, I wish sometimes I could catch what I've said on recorder so you would see how smart I am. <laughs> but let me get this clear. It wasn't of me. Grace. Grace. That's why Paul, look at verse 6 here. He goes on. As they spoke this now, as God's grace and riches landed amongst them, and they began to have speech and knowledge in which they used it in grace, he then even says in verse 6, and even this testimony about Christ, it was confirmed among you. The word testimony literally means to witness or the one who speaks on behalf of another. So all of the knowledge and all the speech that they were given was coming to bear in this grace moment as they were talking to one another. They were passing along to others. They were witnessing. And the idea, he says, is as you spoke grace to one another, we saw grace come to life. It was confirmed among you. Paul was in essence telling them, look, as as you witness And you use the speech and knowledge you've been trusted with. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't just show. It was power. And in people, believers, unbelievers, were being transformed. God's grace was just landing on them. And it wasn't just stopping there. Instead, it was multiplying. They were rich. And out of their richness, they were sharing this riches. And others were being made rich. And Paul was just saying to him, I saw it. And let me tell you something. I look around this church and I could say the same thing. I've seen it. 
I've seen the immensity of the grace I talked about last week, and it has landed on this body, and I've seen it in speech. But it wasn't just speech, and that's what I mean. He picked an example, but now all of a sudden in verse 7, he's just going to take and expand this thing. See, what he's going to do now, look down at verse 7. He's going to say this statement. So that you are not lacking in any gift. Now, in some ways, it's kind of confusing. Some of your Bibles might say spiritual gift, and you're probably wondering, okay, what does that have to do with what you're talking about here? The little Greek word that's used there for gift or spiritual gift, and I rarely use Greek, but here you go. It's the Greek word charisma. We'll see it again in chapter 7. We'll see it again in chapters 12 and 14. But it's used, it's generally translated as this idea of gift. But what we tend to miss inside of that word charisma is we tend to kind of translate it with our thinking, which we get our word charismatic, which would be somebody that's like full of life or maybe a certain segment of the church. But that the root of charisma is this word that we spoke about last week, grace carries. He wasn't talking about just any gift. He used this word specifically to help us understand that what I saw amongst you when I looked amongst you is I just saw a bunch of grace, a bunch of one-way love, a bunch of people that not just in speech but in all kinds of ways, I just saw you one-way loving one another over and over and over They were receiving God's grace. God's grace was coming down to them in this one-way love, and then they were turning around in one-way loving others and doing so, by the way, without any expectation of anything in return. They were living grace. And by the way, anytime you live grace, like we learned in Jesus' life, it comes at great cost. Grace is amazing, but it's never cheap. And I believe, man, this is where now all of a sudden grace starts to get truly supernatural and very tough. See, the culture we live in is built on this idea that, listen, you give me something and I give you something in return. You give me a service and I give you money for it. It's what it's like to live in a capitalistic society. That's how a capitalistic society works. And listen, capitalism isn't a bad thing, so don't, don't get wrong what I'm about to say to you. I, I think it's one of the better man-made systems that we've ever had on this planet. But Christianity is not capitalism. It is giving without any expectation of anything in return. That's the type of love we've been given And now that's the kind of love we've been called to give. This unmerited, unconditional love without any expectation of love in return. And Paul says, I looked into your church and I saw that. I saw that kind of love. I saw people at great great price understanding because they have everything from God, they can just love in this kind of way. They so saw their identity in Christ. They so saw their riches where they didn't care. They were just giving. And we don't do this well and we struggle with this because it doesn't make sense inside of our culture. We don't like it. You see, we think to ourselves, man, if I love people this way, man, it could come back to haunt me. I could get hurt. If, if I love people without any expectation, I worry that they might not give me love in return. 
We're conditioned to believe that in order to survive in this world, in order for me somehow to not be, to, to be swept to the side, I have to always do something with an expectation in return. And so when I say this idea of this love that's one way, this church that was just loving in this way, we would say, yeah, it sounds nice that, that, that somehow that we're going to love in this kind of way, but Todd, that's not how the real world works. And I'd say again, we need to look through God's eyes. I don't care how the real world works. How does God work? And God loves us immensely and calls us to do the same exact thing. Now go with Uncle Todd here, and we're going to pretend for a second. All right, just go with me. Imagine I had a refrigerator that never ran out of food. No matter what happened, every time I went to it, in a way that I could never figure out, it, it always had delicious, nutritious food that it never spoiled. I go, I take something out, I come back, it's full again. So one night I have a party at my house. And having a party at my house, everybody knows that I've got this refrigerator, I've got the magic refrigerator. And I call up and I, I, or I put on the, I send out an evite to everybody. Good news, come into my house for a party. But oh, by the way, it's BYOF style. It's bring your own food. And most of the people will be like, but you got the magic refrigerator. Why are we doing BYOF? Shouldn't we just do BYOU? See, it doesn't make any sense. And if we ever got our minds around this, lo- this love that God has for us, these riches that he has for us, this all-sufficient, never-ending, never-spoiling love for us, we would realize that we could love inexhaustibly because God's love is inexhaustible. I can love in a crazy way. And what Paul's going to do the rest of the way through 1 Corinthians, and this is where I want us to get our minds around this right now, If you don't understand this, the rest of 1 Corinthians is not going to make sense. Because now all of a sudden, he's going to call them to this kind of a love. And I think the other reason that we struggle with something like this is because we think that grace is somehow just divine leniency. Grace means don't worry about it. No harm, no foul. We think grace means, you know, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug or I'm going to look at it the other way. But that's not the case. One of the most difficult forms of unconditional love, one of the most difficult forms of one-way love is tough love. And by the way, I don't think the church does that well. It's wrapped around this idea of confront. See, Paul, the rest of the way through 1 Corinthians, is going to love them by confronting them. It's not cheap love. That's deep committed love but for most of us in this room we found you know what if this person's going to be this way I'm just going to ignore them I'm going to push them away which Paul's going to do on one sense but we're still doing it out of this deep seated love and then Paul's going to let us know it's not just for a week it's not just for a day it's not just for a month it's not just for a year look at verse 7 or verse 8 yeah in the middle of verse 7 you know where I am How long are we going to go, Paul? As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That long, Paul? That long? I think I could do this love thing for maybe a day. Two days. No way a week, dude. 
Come on. But Paul just says, as you wait for the revealing, in other words, this love just keeps happening and happening and happening. And you say, Todd, there is absolutely no way to which Paul then answers this in verse 8. You're right, you can't. That's because verse 8, God will sustain you to the end. Here's more grace. But Todd, you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. You don't know my boss. You don't know my employees. You don't know my neighbors. You don't know the 405 freeway like I know the 405 freeway. To which he comes in and he just says this thing, God will sustain you to the end. I love that. It doesn't mean we're not going to fail. It just means God has us. So even in our failure, we have this idea that if I fail, that somehow it's gonna, things are going to be ter- terrible for me in the end. But look what he says again in verse 8. Not only will he sustain us to the end, but in spite of our sinfulness, our ongoing battle of sin, we will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We say, but yeah, but Todd, I am so unfaithful. And Paul knew you were going to ask that question. That's why he gave us the first three words of verse 9. You are unfaithful, but God is faithful. We have everything we need. The resources are right there. Paul is coming to them and saying, look, I'm going to call you to something huge here. And you're going to think I can't do it. And that's why he opens up with these first nine verses looking at us saying, you're right, you can't, but God can. Can. 